Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Tonight. I'm Jim Schuto, live from Lviv, Ukraine, along with Laura Coates in the U.S., where the Biden administration today unveiled a new round of sanctions against Russia, President Biden met with his top military advisors, voicing the pressing need for the U.S. to constantly adapt its response to the ongoing Russian invasion here. Russia attempted some very public saber-rattling today, showing off the test launch of a new intercontinental ballistic missile. In a televised address, Putin called it, quote, food for thought to those who might threaten his nation. Pentagon, for its part, however, downplayed the test as a non-threat, noting the U.S. was warned in advance and monitored that launch closely. What does remain a very real threat, though, is a new Russian offensive, a big one, in the Donbass, in the eastern part of this country. And I have some new reporting in a moment on how Russian forces appear to be faring just days into this new phase of the war. We do know they have a stranglehold on the southeastern port city of Mariupol where Ukrainian troops and many civilians, hundreds of them, remain surrounded, taking refuge at a steel plant as they make desperate public pleas for help. And Jim, I know an evacuation, I mean, it's unbelievable to think about what's going on because there's the evacuation corridor there that didn't work, as they said, as planned today. And of course, President Zelensky says that some 120 thousand civilians remain trapped there, and we'll have the very latest on the race to get them out. And also later this hour, the Justice Department is taking action to now possibly reinstate the mask mandate for travelers that a Florida federal court has overturned. So what does all of this mean? Could passengers on planes and, of course, elsewhere be required to now mask up yet again? And speaking of Florida, there's a new escalation of the feud between DeSantis and Disney. So is the Republican governor trying to punish a private company for not embracing his politics? Is the GOP-controlled Congress there trying to help him retaliate against Disney for supporting LGBTQ rights? Well, those are at least some of the allegations that are being um, leveled from the Democrats. We're going to hear from a Republican who sponsored one of these new bills to take away some of Disney's powers. And we're also going to dig into this dramatic trial of actor Johnny Depp versus his ex-wife, Amber Heard. Depp took to the stand again today in his defamation case against the actress. We're going to break down all of the new developments. But first, I want to go back to Lviv and Jim Shuto. We've been watching the horrific images, Jim, of Mariupol from the outside. But what are you hearing from those that are trapped inside of that steel plant? I was able to get in touch with a member of the Ukrainian military, the border guards, who is among those Ukrainian soldiers trapped inside, along with many hundreds of civilians, including women and children. And, and, and the prevailing emotion there, frankly, is fear, right? I mean, they, they are uh, holed up there. They fear what would happen to them, even if they are allowed to escape, because they don't trust Russia in this. They fear that 
they might be killed. Certainly soldiers do, as do some of the civilians. Or if, if not killed, imprisoned or forced to go to Russia where they don't want to go. And many of the refugees allowed to leave some of these embattled cities, they weren't given a choice, Laura. They, they, were, they were taken to Russia. And then, you know, there I spoke to one of the advisors uh, to President Zelensky this morning who said that, in effect, if Russia allows them to leave, their intention is to make them hostages. I mean, that's just shocking to think about. The, the intention is to make them hostages. Yeah. I mean, the displacement internally, the threat, the really terroristic behavior that's going on, the accusations of war crimes. And then you talk, I mean, there's a U.S. senior official, mm-hmm. defense official, who told CNN that Russian forces in the East actually added 17 battalion tactical groups in the past week. And by the way, mm-hmm. that's four more in just the last, what, 24 hours? But what has really changed on the ground on that? I mean, has that really had an impact on what we're seeing day to day on the ground there? You're in Lviv. What are you seeing? Yeah. So far on those eastern battle front lines, no, no impact. I've spoken Mm -hmm. with, with two U.S. officials familiar with the latest intelligence assessments. They say there's been no significant or really measurable exchange of land in the first few days of this conflict. It is early but they have also not seen really any substantive changes by Russia and all those things that held them back in the north. Difficulty with supply lines, uh, difficulty, difficulty with command and control of their own forces. So there's a lot of skepticism. And again, you know, the caveat is it's early, but there's a lot of skepticism among U.S. officials as to whether Russia will have any more success in the east than it had in the north. That said, they know they have to arm up the Ukrainian military for a whole different kind of battle. It's going to be a World War II-like scene there, artillery on artillery, tank on tank. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of carnage, sadly, is what they're looking, looking to here. It's a new phase. It's a bloody phase of the war. I mean, it makes your stomach drop to think about the idea of the comparisons to the World mm. War. I know we're talking about the potential of World War III, yeah. but just looking backwards at what we've already been through as a globe on the world wars is just devastating enough and thinking about it. And speaking of actions and sort of ratcheting it up, we saw the provocative move of the Kremlin's missile launch. And I know that you spoke with the top U.S. diplomat for Ukraine about this. So what is the Biden administration and also, of course, NATO saying would happen if Russia goes beyond the demonstrations, Jim? Well, big picture here. This is Russia launching a new ICBM in the midst of a war in Europe. It's, it's provocative by, by any measure. It's not a good thing. That said, U.S. officials say they did know about this test launch in advance. They monitored it very closely. And to date, my colleagues uh, and I, including my colleagues at the Pentagon, the U.S. has not detected any new or unusual movement of Russian nuclear forces. But they are watching closely. And they keep repeating a message which I heard from the acting ambassador to Ukraine earlier today uh, about what would happen if Russia were to threaten the U.S. or NATO. Have a listen. If Russia steps one toe over NATO, uh, NATO uh, will respond. President Biden has made that clear. And uh, we are ready to do so. We have the 82nd Airborne here just down the street from where I am in Poland. They're here to help support Poland and, uh, and the eastern flank of NATO, and they will do so. America's top diplomat for Ukraine there, Kristina Kavin, uh, earlier today. My next guest is Vladimir, Vladimir Putin's former chief economic advisor. Worked with him for years, Andrei Ilarinov. Welcome back to the program. 
you, Good like evening, we Kim. saw this, you saw this ICBM test today. Putin tested an ICBM in the middle, as I noted before, of a war in Europe. He described it explicitly as a warning to anyone threatening his country. As you watch this, is this just hyperbole, just rhetoric from the Russian president, or should the U.S. view him as increasingly dangerous? Uh, yes, it's a signal to the West, and Putin is waiting for the response from the West. And there could be two types of response. One is expression of concern, and it could be another one. It could be 10 more tests of ICBM from the United States, from Britain and France. And it would be the second response. Mr. Putin would understand this signal very clearly, and he would not be engaged in other provocative gesture and actions anymore. So United States and allies with NATO should respond appropriately to such a provocative tests of new ICBM from Russia. Are you saying that the U.S., U.S. leaders, uh, European leaders have been too sensitive to Putin's response because there is a school of thought that he only responds to force? And the threat of force, is that, is that what you're saying? I'm saying that uh, probably Western leaders still do not understand the nature of the person and nature of the regime. This person understands only strength. He does not understand preaching to the Bible. He does not understand expression of concerns. He does not uh, understand so-called diplomacy in which people expressing their some kind of desires without support with real actions. He understands only strengths, and that is why for each provocative gesture, there should be very firm and clear response from the Western nations. And that is the way how to stop the war in Ukraine and against Europe and against the world. So you have seen some strength. You've seen weapons supplies and growing weapons supplies to Ukrainian forces. And those weapons have had a very real impact on the battlefield. They killed, sadly, a lot of Russian soldiers, destroyed a lot of Russian hardware. And you've seen significant economic sanctions that just a couple of months ago, you and I might have considered far-fetched. But you have said they got to go farther. Uh, how much farther? Until the war will be stopped. As long as war continues, as long as Putin continues the assault on Ukraine, as long as Putin killing Ukrainians by hundreds and thousands, we just saw what is going on in Mariupol and in many other places around Ukraine, it means that Putin still has desire to continue this war. So the support for Ukraine from the Western nations should continue with more weapons, with more fuel, with more sanctions, with more embargo until the, this war will be stopped, until all Russian troops will be withdrawn from Ukraine, and until Russia started to repay the damages that committed by the Russian troops into Ukraine. You have highlighted the need for Europe to get off its dependency on Russian oil and gas. Germany has made a promise now to phase out Russian oil entirely by the end of this year, I've spoken to European diplomats who say it is their plan, the EU's plan, to reduce their dependence on Russian gas by two-thirds by the end of the year. Is that 
enough? Is it fast enough? Is it enough to make Putin change course? I think it's a very good sign. First of all, it's a good sign because it demonstrates that the German government is serious about reduction uh, of its dependence on the Russian energy. That's a very good sign. But it is only first step. It is only commitment. It is not yet a real action. What is really necessary right now is just deprive Putin from financial resources that he's using to finance war machine in Ukraine and against Europe. For that purpose, along with his decision to reduce consumption of the Russian energy in Germany as well as in other European countries, it is necessary to stop sending money for this energy back to Kremlin. Mm -hmm. Using those escrow accounts that we have discussed uh, last time, using other measures, and to use those resources for supporting Ukraine. This is the best way how to accelerate process of stopping this war and helping Ukraine. A billion dollars a day in revenue. Uh, we have seen very little public criticism of the war from inside Russia. We did see some public criticism today from a Russian billionaire who criticized the war very publicly in their billionaire Oleg Tinkoff. Does Putin listen to those people? I don't think so. Uh, uh, Mr. Tinkoff is far from Kremlin, far from Russia. He's living in the West, seems to me, for a long time. Uh, he never been in the part of the inner circle or outer circle of Mr. Putin. And for Putin, this criticism is not so very important. But I think for Mr. Tinkoff, a uh, much more important contribution uh, for stopping this war would be the use of some of his resources. Uh, Forbes claims that he is on about three and a half billion US dollars for supporting Ukraine for supporting case of Ukraine to resist Russian aggression and for supporting Ukrainian refugees and those people who wounded, who was, were wounded in Ukraine, who would like to restore their housing and infrastructure in Ukraine. He has some money. Now regular people around the world collecting dollars and pennies and everything just to support Ukrainian case. So he has some money. Why don't he does not he support Ukraine with some resources that he has, money? As I say, put your money where your mouth is. Uh, Andrei Ilarionov, thanks so much. Thank you. Just ahead, thousands of Ukrainian farmers are finding themselves on the front lines of this war. Plus, the major impact this invasion is having now on the global food supply. It's got real implications. That's coming up. Russia's war in Ukraine is also worsening food hunger. Farmers across this country have been forced to stop food production it is so bad the U.S. Treasury estimates at least 10 million more people will be thrown into poverty because of higher food costs. There's also talk of shortages of grain and corn. CNN's 
Ed Lavendera joins me tonight from Kyiv. Ed, you spoke to some Ukrainians who now must focus on fighting instead of farming. That, that's got big implications for this country and the world. Major implications. You know, as the mayor of a small farming town told me a few days ago, he said Ukrainian farmers are good at two things, making bread and fighting. They prefer to grow the wheat that makes bread, but now they're realizing that sometimes they have to fight. Serhii Yaichuk runs a one-man dairy operation. He has six cows on a little farm just 15 miles from the front lines of the battlefield in southern Ukraine. But neither Russian soldiers or falling rockets have stopped the 49-year-old from tending to his work. That is Sergei's house there, just in the distance, and there is an unexploded rocket that landed this close. Landed here about a week ago. Did you hear that rocket land? Everything happened before my eyes. The explosions erupted all around him when this strike hit. Russian rockets often target his village of 500 people. We were covered with dust, just dust and shrapnel all the way here. I fell to the ground, crawling, not feeling my legs or arms. It was scary. For those who have not gone through this, you would not believe it. Sergei keeps one eye on his herd and the other eye on the war. So these are Sergei's six dairy cows. And if you notice, he has them spread out. He wants to separate them so they don't all get killed in one strike. He must keep the cows alive. This is the life of a farmer in Ukraine. Maxim Krivenko and his family grow the traditional Ukrainian crops of wheat and sunflower on these lush, wide-open fields near the village of Yavkine. But the war has upended his business. It's been unfortunate for all of us. Basically, everything has shut down, and we aren't working now. Maxim says the cost of fuel and grain seeds have skyrocketed. It's difficult to find parts to repair farm machinery. He's supposed to plant this year's wheat crop in the coming weeks, but if the fighting returns to this land, it won't happen. So this is the storage area where they keep their sunflower seeds but they haven't been able to sell it because of the war. Maxime is also stuck with an entire season sunflower seed harvest. It just sits in this storage space. Will this war kill your business? It's already killed it. We have stockpiled our wheat production and our sunflowers, but we aren't able to sell them. So I would say it is the beginning of the end. Ukraine is considered the world's breadbasket, along with Russia, producing 30% of the world's wheat exports. The United Nations says this war is creating a food production crisis not seen since World War II. Thousands of Ukrainian farmers now find themselves on the front lines of this war, and their growing fields of wheat and sunflower have been turned into debris fields for missiles and rockets and other explosives. The wreckage of recent battles still sit in the farm fields. The body of a Russian soldier is buried next to this ammunition supply truck. Farm or fight is the choice facing frontline farmers. Sergei Yaychuk has already faced this life and death decision. When the Russians invaded this village last month, Sergei joined the fight. He was shot in the shoulder. Oh, wow. If the Russians come back, do you want to fight again? What else can we do? 
I'll take my pitchfork and go fight. I will defend my village until the end. When the war returns, the harvest will have to wait. The United Nations predicts that about 30% of Ukraine's agricultural fields will go unused this season. And this is quite the dilemma for not just farmers on the front lines, but throughout the country. We are just weeks away from the seeds for the wheat harvest that need to be planted. That is up in serious question for many farmers across the country. And then you have uh, just the, uh, the issues with getting and exporting uh, any kind of food that is grown here. Remember, the ports along the Black Sea are essentially blockaded by the, the Russian Navy. So there are problems, Jim, at every turn for farmers during this harvesting season. Well, for farmers and then the many people around the world who depend on the, the corn, the grain that they grow, a food crisis to come. Ed Lavendera in Kiev, thanks so much. Uh, and Laura, it's just one more example of how this war reverberates far beyond Ukraine's borders. It absolutely does. And for anyone thinking that this is something that is specific to Ukraine, it reminds you that we, were, we are part of yeah. one world and all in a lot of this together. Thank you, Jim. We'll check back with you shortly. And coming up... Florida's governor wants to strip Disney World of something it's had for more than, well, half a century. Is it payback for the company's opposition to what critics call the don't say gay law? The sponsor of the new bill says it targets Disney and nothing else. He joins me next. If you are in one of these uh, corporations, if you're a woke CEO, you want to get involved in our legislative business, look, it's a free country. But understand, if you do that, I'm fighting back against you. Well, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis appears to be making pretty good on that threat amid his weeks-long feud with Disney. Today, the Florida Senate approved a move that would revoke Disney's status as a special district starting next year. The move comes just one day after Santos urged lawmakers to do just that. Now, he appears to be angry with D- Disney's C- CEO, who condemned the new Florida law that critics describe as the Don't Say Gay bill. Disney also announced that it would stop its political donations in Florida. Now, Disney is the state's largest private employer. That must not come as a surprise to you. But it's had self-governing powers for the past 55 years, which might come as a surprise to you. And the company manages its own land and public services like firefighting, like police, and its special district even levies its own taxes. So while Disney has yet to comment on this bill, Democrats call this an act of retaliation. The Florida House will take up this measure tomorrow. I want to bring in Florida State Republican Representative Randy Fine, who is the sponsor of the bill. And I understand it's also your birthday. I suppose you're not going to Disney World for this particular trip, but we'll see. We'll see about how this goes. Representative Fine, happy birthday to you. And I I do want to start with this idea of what it's being called this act of retaliation, because this has been nearly half a century. It's the largest private employer. Why now? go to have a reassessment of these privileges. Why now? 
Sure. Well, and thanks for having me. I can think of no better way to spend my birthday than fighting for the values of the people of Florida. Look, Disney has been an incredibly powerful political force in our state. And for decades, many politicians have said, why should one company have special privileges above another? Why should they have privileges that Universal doesn't have? I think what's happened in the last few weeks is as Disney has tried to import California values into Florida, Florida voters have said, look, treat them just like you treat everybody else. No better or no worse. So is it when you say the California values, are you speaking about the discussions of them weighing into the what critics call the don't say K bill? Or is it the idea that they're no longer giving political donations in Florida? Because obviously, perhaps the former might not ruffle the feathers, but the latter sounds like, well, are you establishing you got to pay to be in Florida to have the privileges as long as you donate to politicians? Sure. Well, let me clear that up. Governor DeSantis, I believe, has raised over $100 million. I think $100,000 of that came from Disney. So anyone who believes that would actually affect anyone's behavior is quite silly. No, what this is about is about Disney not recognizing that they are a guest in our state. They are a California company that is a guest in the state of Florida, and they are a guest that has had special privileges that no other company has had. If you want special privileges, you'd better be on your best behavior. And when you come in and misrepresent a bill that overwhelming majorities of Republicans, Democrats, even Biden voters support, you're going to have an issue in the state of Florida. So on this idea of behaving appropriately and behaving well, and by the way, you, you talk about it being a guest in Florida, let's be honest, it, it sings it more than sings for its supper. It's one heck of a guest. It brings in a great deal of money into Florida. But on that idea of money, the notion of what it would mean if they were no longer given these privileges you speak of. I mean, we're talking about they run their own police and firefighting. They even in some areas generate their own electricity. If you remove those special privileges, two counties in Florida are going to have to pick up the slack. Isn't that going to cost people more money in the long run than having a private entity generate and care for itself? It's not. And I would point out that Universal Orlando, SeaWorld, Legoland, Busch Gardens all managed to do this without special privileges. The fact of the matter is when we eliminate an extra layer of government, we create efficiencies. Local governments in Florida complain all the time that the legislature takes their power away. What we're talking about doing here with all six of these special districts that this bill deals with is sending those powers, those revenues, those assets and those liabilities back to the local government that for so long have told us that they want them. Well, the concern really is, Representative, the motivation. And obviously, we have a democracy. Representatives like yourself and on both sides of the aisle are able to advocate on behalf of their constituents. But the question for many is the motivation. And it still hangs on the idea of why now, after more than 50 years, once they have weighed in, the CEO has weighed in on this particular bill that's really a part of an increasing discussion about culture wars that are around the country, but also focused in Florida. Is it the fact that they have weighed in on this particular issue? Or is it really, hey, it's been in the works for such time? I mean, they just changed their agenda over the last day. Wouldn't you want to have more time as representative to evaluate this as opposed to a potential knee-jerk reaction? Well, I would challenge that it's a knee-jerk reaction. Look, when you kick the hornet's nest, issues 
pop up that we deal with. What we learned when all of this happens is out of 133 special districts that existed before the Florida Constitution was created, six had not been updated, including this one. That's an issue. And we said we needed to do it. Part of the reason it never could be updated is Disney used its political power to keep the legislature from updating it. Because they have gone and tried to bring values to Florida that go so far in the face of what Florida voters believe they don't have that political power to keep this long-standing effort to modernize this special district. That's why we have the ability to do this now. Well, Florida voters are not a monolith. You know that quite well. So the idea of a, a really wide swath is going to probably be one of the issues you'll have to deal with when you delay, debate this issue tomorrow. Florida State Representative Randy Fine, thank you for joining the show. I appreciate it. Happy birthday. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I want to get back to Jim in Ukraine. I want to hear what's going on over there. Well, this is one more fact of this invasion. Some of the most vulnerable being made more vulnerable, as if the invasion isn't horrific enough for the healthy Mm -hmm. trying to survive here. Hundreds of children with cancer have had to be evacuated from the country while already fighting for their lives. We're going to talk to someone playing a key role in trying to save those young lives. That's coming up. This war spares no one here. Of course, the obvious ways, the bombs, the fighting, the gunfire, and the less obvious, the interruption of basic services, including life-saving health care. So far, this war has now forced more than 400 children with cancer to evacuate the country. They are getting treatment abroad, thankfully, but rescuing these kids from Ukraine in the middle of a war, of course, can be extremely dangerous. My next guest is Ulya Nogovitsina. She's the director for the largest children's cancer foundation in Ukraine. Yulia, thanks so much for joining tonight. Thank you for inviting me. First, I'd just like to ask the, the, the practicality of this. Getting around this country in the middle of a war is difficult. It's dangerous. Uh, people get bombed, targeted, shelled as they drive. How do you manage to get kids who, who are already suffering through cancer out of here safely? You know, it was a, a sort of mission impossible. Uh, from the very first days of the war, we tried to evacuate children from the biggest hospitals. Uh, we took them in uh, rather large groups and we sought for either buses or train cars to bring them to Lviv, a city in the western Ukraine. It was very difficult and challenging because uh, it was just near impossible to find any means of transport uh, to move these kids. And everyone should recognize that these kids are not just healthy kids. These kids are in severe health conditions. Yeah. So they, they have very low blood yeah. counts. They can have fever, whatever. And we approached everyone. And sometimes we were given a bus by people deputy. Sometimes the Ministry of Health helped us. So, but every time it was an ad hoc situation and we had to find a solution. Of course, of course. Now, uh, the strikes, uh, Lviv, of course, is a hub, as you mentioned, for getting folks safely out of the country. There were missile strikes here, as you know, earlier this week. Have that, has that affected the ability to get people out of the country, the children, safely? Um, 
it affected to a certain extent. Um, it didn't stop us from evacuating children from Ukraine, but it just demonstrated that you cannot be safe anywhere in Ukraine. And regardless where the children are, they are to be taken out of country for the reasons of safety. And even in Lviv, which we believe to be a relatively safe place, it's not safe to stay there. And even if there are some uh, treatment capacities available, still, you cannot guarantee that the children will not be shot by missiles hitting the a hospital. That's why our determination right now to take all children uh, with cancer out of Ukraine for proper treatment. Goodness, I mean, you see the pictures, you hear the stories, you, you want to take them out yourself practically. Cancer by itself is traumatizing for children and their families. T to layer on top of that a war how do you manage the psychological side of this for the kids? Uh, you know, I watch the parents and they, they are not lost. They are res uh, reserved and resolved. They are resolved to save their children. Uh, and I see that they are very strong. Um, yes, they faced one uh, trauma when they uh, learned about the diagnosis. And during the war, it's like a double threat because your child can die yeah. uh, due to the interruption in treatment or due to shelling and bombing and so on. Uh, but we try to support these families. Our, we have a team of 12 psychologists who work with them online uh, while they are still in Ukraine and when they move abroad. And so we have a big team of our like, of volunteers and of our partners, international partners, who support us. So we are not alone in this initiative. It's a great partnership, collaboration with our international partner, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. But for them, we would not be able to do this. You've said that relocation is a temporary solution. We, we don't know how long this war is going to last. It could be weeks, it could be months, it could be longer before it's safe for them to come back. Have you discussed more permanent options, treatment options for the children? Uh, look, uh, so all children which have, uh, who have been moved to uh, foreign countries, they can stay there till the completion of their treatment. Even if the war ends earlier, it's not appropriate to move them back because some treatment is simply not available in Ukraine. Or uh, in Ukraine, they would be treated under the different protocols, and it's not good for children. So we received guarantees from the foreign hospitals admitting our children that they can stay there as long as they should stay until they uh, are in safe condition. And uh, of course, we want to, as, as soon as Ukraine wins this war and the peace is restored, we want to rebuild the Ukrainian pediatric oncology service in Ukraine and make it even better than it used to be before the war. Well, listen, I, I'm sure folks watching, uh, I know I do, I, I, I do wish, well, I wish you for the work you do and I wish the children the best of luck uh, and recovery, right, uh, as they receive treatment in the midst of all this. Yulia Nogovitsina, thanks so much. Thank you. Those poor little kids. We're going to be back live from Ukraine in just a few minutes. But coming up, breaking news back home in the U.S. The fight over masking on planes and mass transits, it's not over. Laura looks at why the Biden administration tonight is appealing the lifting of the mandate, even though... It was set to end soon. That's coming up.
Biden administration is appealing a federal ruling striking down the mask mandate for public transportation. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki tells CNN Plus host Chris Wallace this appeal is crucial to preserving the CDC's authority. We think it's entirely reasonable, uh, as this, the Department of Justice, for the CDC, the health and data experts, health experts most importantly, in our administration to be able to have that time to evaluate, but also because they want to fight to ensure the CDC's uh, the authority and ability to put in mandates in the future remains intact. I want to bring in Chief of Legal Analyst Jeffrey Tubin. Jeff, she said entirely reasonable, but here's the rub on this issue. It's a bit of a yo-yo. I thought earlier today they were emphasizing choice on mask use. And so how do you think this is going to play out? The idea of saying, look, you want to have choice. It's up to you. The president saying that even yesterday and then trying to preserve the credibility of the CDC to have this authority. Um, Laura, I think the technical legal term for what's going on here is a mess. Um, (laughs) There are so many contradictory and and puzzling things going on here. Um, To to add yet more, the Biden administration is appealing this order, but they're not asking for a stay. Mm -hmm. So there is no way this case will be resolved before May 3rd. Well, a stay, just so we're we're not the only lawyers in the room, but the stay meaning that they would ask for them to reinstate the mask mandate while the whole thing is pending, right? To say, let's let's keep the status quo before the Florida judge's ruling. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. That's that. If you really thought the CDC needed this uh, order in place, uh, you would ask for a stay, as you said, to keep the mask mandate intact. But they're not asking for a stay. They are simply litigating the underlying case. Now, what I don't understand, and maybe you understand this, Laura, is why isn't this whole case moot after May 3rd? Because the only issue, as I understand, that was before Judge Mazzell in Florida was whether the CDC could uh, issue this order, which expires on May 3rd. I mean, well, I, I, yeah. again, I'm, I'm a little baffled by that. Well, the only thing I can think of, and she alluded to this point, was the idea of trying to preserve the authority for the future declaration of an emergency. And of course, the, the issue here is that the CDC, a rulemaking agency, cannot just have an indefinite period of time where they say, here's the rule, no notice and comment, no one gets to weigh in. And so they want to be able to preserve it, I would imagine. The problem is the two-week deadline you're talking about, it's not clear that they would have needed that extra time and they haven't necessarily given that logic on the issue. But, you know, we're both pontificating on that, but I do want to get something even more that's even pressing right now. I don't know if you've been watching this trial that involves a defamation suit brought by Johnny Depp yeah. against his ex-wife, Amber Heard. And there's a, been a, a number of high-profile defamation cases recently. The most recent one, of course, Sarah Palin and the New York Times. It seems uh, it's obviously a different case, but this one's interesting in particular because it's based on not what a journalist in the Washington Post has said, but an op-ed written by Amber Heard that doesn't name Johnny Depp, that's been interpreted as meaning Johnny Depp was abusive, allegedly. What do you make about what needs to be proven in a case like this? Well, I mean, it, it, it seems like Johnny Depp's case is is extremely weak on, on many levels. Um, it, it, just to remind people what the standard is for libel cases involving public figures, um, the, the plaintiff has to show either that the person making the statement knew the statement was false 
or had reckless disregard for whether the statement was false. Now, keep in mind, Amber Heard, um, you know, she she is the uh, person who says she was um, abused by by Johnny Depp. So it's hard for me to imagine how any court is going to say, well, it's reckless disregard for her to recount her own experience. Um, I, I just think Johnny Depp has virtually no chance of winning this case. What do you think? Well, you know, I, I happen to disagree in the idea of the no chance of it. You know, obviously, it's hard to ever predict fully, but the idea of truth as the defense to defamation, you're accurate, of course, but one could mm-hmm. try to establish that it's not the truth. It could try to establish that this is a statement that was not truthful, and that's going to be really what his lawyers are going to have to prove. And whether she takes a stand or not to try to talk about these issues, I'm very curious about. And really, I do wonder about how both are public figures, whether that will cancel out in some way in front of the fact finders here. But we'll wait and see. Jeffrey Tubin, nice to see you as always. Thank you. All righty. We'll be right back, everyone. Welcome back. Thank you, Laura. I was going to be next to you, though, a few thousand miles apart. I will be in <laughs> Ukraine again tomorrow for CNN Tonight. Laura will be reporting from Washington. And Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.